This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. My name is T.W. Jones. I'm a pediatric infectious disease specialist at the University of Utah and Primary Children's Hospital, and today we're going to be talking about rabies virus infections. I'd like to lead off with a case vignette. We'll start off talking about a family. They were staying in a bungalow in Costa Rica on vacation. During the daytime, they were going on various adventures, hiking, swimming in local water sources, zip lining, and so forth. During the night, the parents noticed a bat had made its way into the children's sleeping quarters. They did not notice it biting any of the children. The children didn't have any bite marks. The parents simply scooped the bat up in a bucket with uh, a broom and with bare hands and would, pour, and, and would pour the bat outside every night. However, the bat would make its way back into the bungalow uh, each morning and continue to be found in the children's sleeping quarters as the children were asleep. They repeated this for several more nights and finally returned back to the United States and were informed by their pediatrician that they may have been exposed to rabies virus and they may need to present for care for rabies virus prophylaxis. So let's go ahead and lead off into the epidemiology of rabies virus infections. Globally speaking, rabies virus infections lead to almost 59,000 deaths around the world each year. The majority of these deaths take place in Africa and India. And this is thought to be largely due to a lack of resources and a lack of post-exposure prophylaxis, a lack of uh, knowledge about uh, prevention of rabies, but also a very large reservoir of the infection in dogs, wild dogs, and stray dogs. In the United States, however, we only see about one to three cases of rabies virus infection per year. And all of this has to do with, like I was saying, the animal reservoirs of the viral infection. Throughout the world, rabies virus can be found in all kinds of domestic and wild animals everywhere. Only a few places are exempt from uh, rabies virus infections, and these are Australia, Antarctica, and certain islands like Hawaii and Japan. It's thought that bats are the ancestral reservoir of rabies virus, that it was originally a bat virus that spread to other mammals uh, around the world. And for the most part, the major reservoirs globally now are peri-domestic dog populations. These are stray dogs and domesticated dogs, and these lead to the majority of cases around the world, like I was saying. However, we also see major reservoirs in coyotes, foxes, skunks, raccoons, monkeys, and of course bats. Now, almost all mammals can be susceptible to rabies virus infections if they are bitten or exposed to the virus in a significant way. However, while almost all animals can be infected, only certain ones are actually lead to major spread of the infection, and certain ones almost never seem to have the infection naturally. Um, these include logomorphs and rodents. Logomorphs are rabbits and hares. And for the most part, rodents are never implicated in rabies, rabies virus infections to humans. The only exception to this rule are woodchucks and groundhogs. And where we have large raccoon reservoirs, we do sometimes see woodchuck and groundhog populations develop the rabies virus infection. Now, how do we tell what rabies virus infection looks like in animals? It's kind of hard to say in wild animals, but we do have well-described behaviors observed in dogs with rabies virus infections. However, bear in mind, any of the behaviors we describe could be uh, absent or difficult to discern in a wild animal population. Now, the WHO lists certain symptoms which are classic for rabies and help define cases or suspected cases. And these include hypersalivation, paralysis, lethargy, unprovoked or abnormal aggression for the animal species, 
abnormal vocalizations, and diurnal activity in a normally nocturnal species. That is, a species that is normally up and about at nighttime is out and about during the daytime, which would be unusual. We also talk about different types of rabies, especially when we talk about rabies in dogs and humans. These used to be known by the terms furious rabies and dumb rabies, and these refer to an encephalitic form of rabies and a paralytic form of rabies, respectively speaking. We think dumb rabies may actually be more common in dogs, so the classic depiction of a dog foaming at the mouth and charging at anything it finds in the street, perhaps like you remember from the movie To Kill a Mockingbird where Atticus Finch had to put the dog down, isn't necessarily the majority of dog rabies cases. Instead, it can look like, as I described, lethargy, paralysis, depression, and overall uh, a progression to coma. Dogs usually die within about seven days of contracting the virus and, and developing their first symptoms, but they may start shedding active virus in their saliva two to three days before they develop symptoms. Therefore, when we have dogs, cats, or ferrets, uh, that may have led to a bite to an individual, we recommend that they be watched for 10 days total following the bite. If that animal lives, they certainly don't have rabies because inexorably the disease leads to death of the animal. This is not a reliable method in wild animals, and especially not bats, where there are large reservoirs of rabies-like viruses like lysiviruses. Now, when we talk about dog rabies, it's also important to point out that in 1947 in the United States and Canada, we started mass vaccinating dogs throughout the country. And this has led to the elimination of rabies for the most part in North America. The exception is Mexico. This has the only documented canine rabies cases in the 21st century. So this is still a place where there are active reservoirs of dog rabies. But for the most part in the United States and Canada, Rabies within dogs is essentially eliminated, although we still are very careful since dogs can acquire rabies from wild animal populations. Now let's talk about how rabies gets transmitted to humans. Typically, transmission occurs through an infected animal's saliva, which gets introduced through a break in the skin, perhaps through a bite as the dog or other animal snaps at a human being in an act of abnormal aggression. Now those types of exposures are going to be obvious. A dog bite is obvious. However, bites from bats are much more difficult to appreciate. These bites can be very, very small and inapparent to the average observer and even to experts in taking care of bats. Now, there is also some concern that in cave environments where there are large populations or colonies of bats, that sometimes there is aerosolization of saliva that can lead to rabies infection, um, which was a case described some number of years ago. However, because bite, uh, bites from bats are so small, there was some controversy over whether aerosolization was really the source or it was just an unappreciated bat bite. In any case, once the bite uh, or other form of introduction of the saliva uh, leads to the virus getting into the host uh, human, we see it replicate within local muscle tissue and then traveling along the peripheral nerves up to the dorsal root ganglion into the central nervous system, and then disseminating from there into the host uh, human's organs, such as the corneas, such as the rest of the brain stem, uh, such as the salivary glands. Now, this travel along the nerve that I was describing from the original introduction into the muscle tissue can take weeks to months. So there is a long latency period um, before, from the time of the introduction of the infected saliva into the human host's uh, tissues to the time that the human host actually develops symptoms. 
And this lag time sometimes can be a benefit to us, clinically speaking, because it gives us time to act. But it can also be a problem as well, because individuals can think they are safe from rabies when, in fact, um, it is just part of the latency period before it actually becomes symptomatic. And this is where some of the danger lies. After it actually reaches the dorsal root ganglion, this is when the symptoms of active rabies begin. And these can include fever, headache, malaise. It can include nausea, vomiting. And most distressingly, it can include paresthesias at or around the bite site or the affected limb, as well as neuropathic pain or shooting electrical type pain, and extremely severe itching at the inoculation site to the point where some individuals will cause severe abrasions and excoriations of their own skin. After this point, the individual is going to progress to the encephalitic or paralytic forms of rabies. In the encephalitic form of rabies, we see the individual develop confusion, agitation, hyperactivity, hypersalivation, excessive sweating, and then finally hydrophobia and aerophobia. And what are these? To describe these accurately, it's a spasm of the larynx and the uh, pharynx um, in response to the sensation of water and sometimes even to the thought or the visualization of water. And similarly, aerophobia is even a, a brush of air or a breeze of air blowing across the individual can send their uh, oropharynx into spasms to the sense of, of choking and uh, being unable to breathe. And as a result, the individual starts to become um, very fearful and anxious of even the thought of water or fresh air blowing from a window. The paralytic form of rabies in humans can lead to headache and neck stiffness, and then finally, flaccid paralysis. All of these symptoms, whether it is the encephalitic form of rabies or the paralytic form of rabies, will invariably lead to death within 5 to 11 days. And unfortunately, there is no treatment for symptomatic rabies beyond supportive care. Now, there have been some individuals who have pioneered certain protocols um, that lead to a medically induced coma with the application of certain antiviral medications. Um, these, uh, the one that is most well known in the United States is known as the Milwaukee Protocol, um, where the uh, clinicians had a great deal of success in uh, having a young lady uh, survive symptomatic rabies and actually survive with a great deal of independence afterwards. The problem is, is that others have tried to apply the Milwaukee Protocol in other cases of rabies and have had um, very variable success. And it's not clear how generalizable it is to other cases of rabies. So at this time, it is not recommended broadly throughout the world, uh, but sometimes is considered in very unique situations. Now, while the treatment of rabies is a um, sad subject because there is no real successful treatment that we, we have, um, the most important thing for any clinician to be aware of is that we do have prophylaxis available for it. And we can actually help prevent the um, onset of symptomatic rabies um, when we are concerned that we may have had a, a true exposure. So we'll go into some of these details right now. The first thing to be aware of is if you have an animal bite, um, you need to be aware of bite wound care. Um, and so this is going to consist of appropriate washing of the wound, cleaning it out with an appropriate amount of sterile normal saline. Um, also assessment of the individual's tetanus vaccination status. We can never forget that. And to consider if we need prophylactic antibiotics on board. We'll move on from this subject because uh, the care of animal bites will be probably a broader subject than we have time to talk about right now. And we'll move instead into um, the actual uh, passive and active immunization of a, an individual against rabies virus. 
For those who are previously unvaccinated, and this really is going to be the majority of individuals with a rabies virus exposure, we're going to consider giving them human rabies immunoglobulin, or HRIG, and it consists of a dose of 20 units per kilogram, and this is going to be injected in and around that bite wound uh, where the actual inoculation may have occurred. Following this, we'll give the rabies vaccine to the individual. We'll give them four doses. We want to give it away from where we just did the infiltration with the immunoglobulin because immunoglobulin will bind to the vaccine and inactivate it. So we don't want the two to be given in the same site or the same limb if we can help it. And we'll give it intramuscularly and we'll give the rabies vaccine on days 0, 3, 7, and 14. 0 meaning the day of the actual uh, care that took place when they presented to care. That's for the unvaccinated individual who's been exposed to rabies virus. For the vaccinated individual, which may include some veterinary uh, workers, it may include some laboratory researchers, and then potentially somebody who's been exposed in the past, they don't require human rabies immunoglobulin or HRIG. They only require a, a booster of their rabies vaccine given on days zero and three. Again, day zero being the day they present to care. And from there, um, that covers them. So let's return to our case. We have the family who was staying in a bungalow and was handling a bat at night. Um, the parents did not have gloves on their hands when they would handle the bat and throw it outside each night. And the children were sleeping potentially at the time the bat was in the room. Bats, again, as I mentioned before, can have very small or inapparent bites. And especially in a young sleeping child, it can be completely un un unappreciated or underappreciated if the bat actually bit the child at all. Bats are known vectors or, or known animal reservoirs for rabies in North America. And so with this piece of information, the pediatrician recommended the family needs to present for rabies prophylaxis. And so each member of the family received an appropriate dose of human rabies immunoglobulin and was started on the appropriate vaccine series for rabies virus. With that, this concludes our podcast on rabies virus infections. Thank you very much for listening.